Well, just before we get into the word this morning, I want to bring up one more person to help uh, to share this morning, to share her story. Jeannie Rodriguez and her husband George and their two daughters, Maya and Kate, have been a part of Mount Hope for about the past three years or so. And in a, they're about to move on in a few weeks. George's job uh, moves them around quite a bit, and so they'll only be with us a few weeks more. Jeannie had shared with me a little while back about her story, about what the ward had done in her life, and I really... We wanted to look for a place where to share that with the church. I believe some of the things the ward has brought her through will be a blessing to you as well. The truth is that sitting in our chairs every Sunday morning is a story of God's grace, of what God has done and what God is doing in people's lives. And it builds us up. It encourages us and it encourages our faith when we hear that from one another. And I know that Jeannie's story is one that is going to connect maybe with some particular people today, but I believe it has something uh, to say to all of us of what the Lord has worked in the life of a mom and a daughter, uh, especially. So would you welcome Jeannie Rodriguez as she comes to share her story this morning? So honestly, most of my life has been pretty charmed. I grew up in a big family, and my parents were not perfect, um, but they were pretty great. Um, Seeing them honestly live out their faith has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. But I'm not actually going to talk to you about all of my blessings, um, because it's really in the struggles where God reveals his glory. Many of you don't actually know us. We move all the time, generally every one to three years. We've lived all over the East Coast, um, but we've also spent three years in Ankara, Turkey, two in Guatemala City, and my husband George spent a year in Yemen without us. And God is always faithful. It is hard, um, but he holds us up and he always provides. George and I have been married for almost 25 years. Our anniversary is in another week or so. Um, Our oldest daughter, Maya, was born in 2006. My second pregnancy ended in 2010 in miscarriage. In 2011, I was pregnant again, and we almost lost Kate at 21 weeks. There was an emergency surgery, bed rest, lots of praying, and counting weeks. Just shy of 29 weeks, my water broke and she was breached. Um, So I lost most of the amniotic fluid and they could only hold us for two days before they had to deliver. They gave me massive shots to help mature her lungs And they warned us that they would not know how healthy she was until she was out and they could examine her. And God was so good to us. She came out screaming and we were not a tragedy that day. She stayed in the NICU for about six weeks 
uh, she battled some reflux and she took a pretty long time to grow into her forehead. But she never had any other physical problems or even noticeable delays. And they told us she was the best 29-weeker they had ever seen. When Kate was born, my mom was about a year past an official diagnosis of dementia. And although her physical health was excellent, her cognitive abilities declined rapidly. The dementia destroyed the language center of her brain and her speech became gibberish and her personality evaporated. I wish that I had the words to express the depth of treasure that I lost to that illness. And yet, at the same time, I knew that God was in it. I knew that he was with us. My mom had told me shortly after the diagnosis that she was scared and that she had talked with God about it, that she had told him that she did not want to go through this, but that if this was the path that he had for her, then she was going to do the best that she could for as long as she could, and that she was going to trust him for the rest. As things worsened, I kept praying that God would heal her or that some drug trial would be miraculous, but he pretty consistently let me know that he was not going to answer my prayers in the way that I wanted him to. So I knew that it would be hard, but I knew that he was with us. What I was not prepared for was my dad. My dad spent over 20 years as a New York City firefighter, the bravest man that I know, an actual hero. He literally saved lives as his job, but he could not save my mom. He did everything he could to protect and care for her. She started wandering at night and he stopped sleeping. Eventually, he had what looked like a nervous breakdown and while he was hospitalized, the rest of us learned what it was like caring for my mother. My older sisters got them into an assisted living facility in 2012 and things were mostly calm for a few months, although my dad was really sick for a while. Just after Christmas that same year, my husband George was scheduled to leave for a one-year post in the Middle East. Since we were not allowed to go with him, the girls and I went to Florida to be near my parents and help out. By January, my mom didn't always recognize my dad and complained to the nurses about the man following her around. Against our wishes, they separated my parents putting my mother in a locked memory care ward and my father elsewhere. Within a week, my mom contracted a UTI, which often caused dementia patients to go ballistic, which she did. Uh, the assisted living facility sent her to a general population psychiatric facility, and we could not get her out until they released her. My father was heartbroken and confused. 
on February 20th while my mother was still in the psych facility in his room at the assisted living facility my father ended his own life. My girls were six and 16 months and still needed their mother and my mother needed a legal guardian. So I had to figure out how to manage despite grief that I thought would crush me. A few months after my dad's death, the situation deteriorated in Yemen where my husband was posted and the government evacuated all non-essential employees. But George is essential, so he stayed. My dad was gone. My mom was alive, but a shell of who she'd been. My husband was in possible imminent danger all the time. I was vigilantly watching my toddler for developmental delays, and my first grader attended three different schools that year. I was in knots over every person I cared most about. And I wondered if somehow everything was my fault. Maybe terrible things kept happening because there was some lesson that I was too foolish to learn. Or maybe God was going to take everything to prove that he really was all that I needed. I stopped going to bed at night. I would stay up reading on the couch or watching TV until I fell asleep. Because if I went to bed, I would end up crying myself to sleep, begging God to keep George safe, having no confidence that he actually would because he had said no to so many of my other prayers. I sometimes thought it would be easier if I didn't believe in God. If God doesn't exist, then nothing makes sense anyway. But if God is who he says he is, then why would he do this to me? But I do know him. And I know with my whole being that he is everything that he says he is always. There is no untruth in him. So it took me a while, but I started re-examining my expectations and rereading uncomfortable scriptures about suffering. And over time, I saw that in fact, God promises us suffering. That it doesn't mean that we're being punished or that we lack faith or even that we've necessarily done something wrong. He gives us suffering. It is an awful gift that we would never choose for ourselves. But if we choose to walk through it with him, it conforms us to his image. It develops character in us, and it reveals our utter inability to save ourselves, and it unveils his sovereignty and his goodness. I could not heal my mother. I could not save my father. I could not protect my husband from terrorists. I could not control whether or not Kate had developmental delays. 
and I could not give Maya a better school environment than the options that were available. Everyone in my life needed things that were totally and completely beyond my ability to provide. I did the best I could, but it wasn't close to being sufficient. I was not enough. And for the first time in my life, I fully understood that I had never been enough. I had never been in control of any of the things that were most important to me, and I never could be. I am just a girl standing before God, hoping that he is good, and he is. The things that I've shared with you this morning are things that I almost never talk about with anyone but George. And I don't tell you these things to shock you or make you feel sorry for me, but because I didn't think that I suffered well or even knew that it was possible to suffer well. And I want you to know when you face suffering or if you are now facing suffering, that God does not abandon you. He does not leave. I stopped listening because I was afraid of what might happen next. But whatever is next, it is always better with his strength and his grace and his peace. When I came to my senses and sought him again, he was right there with me as he had always been. And I know eventually that suffering will find me again. And when it does, I know there will be purpose in it, as there will be for you, to glorify God. And I know that God will still be good, even then. Even if he takes my body, my heart, my mind, they are his. He is still good. Even if he never does another thing for me, he's already done it all. His death gives me life, and his resurrection gives me eternity. What in this life may feel like endless suffering will be dwarfed to nothingness by the glory of eternity. Hebrews 12 tells us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him was eternity in heaven with the Father, and he has set that same joy before us so we too can endure our sufferings and produce fruit and righteousness. God bless you guys. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for listening to the Lord and being obedient and sharing that with us. 
this morning. I believe there's much of it that probably connected with many of us. I thought about, I, after I read it and Jeannie sent it over to me, I thought, how am I going to get up and preach after this? No one's going to want to listen to anything I have to say to this. Because <laughs> it's powerful, the way the word touches people's lives. There's more to the story. Uh, you know, the first, I, I can't help but I asked Jeannie if I could share this, and we asked Maya. The first, um, at one of the early times that I met Jeannie and George is they were, I walked in on a Wednesday night and they were sitting in the two chairs right outside the church office. And we didn't have anything for adults that night. And I thought, oh no, here's this new family to the church and they're expecting us to have a class for adults and we don't have anything. And I was like feeling, I was like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. We don't really have anything on Wednesday nights. We have youth. And they're like, oh no, we know. And I said, well, you don't have to stay. You can leave, you know, your, your daughter and go get coffee or whatever. And, uh, and then they explained a little more. And they said, no, Maya, their daughter, was, is at a place where she wasn't really interested in the things of God. And, and we were bringing her to this church that is a youth group. And we said, we're staying as a family. And, uh, and if she stays, we're going to stay. And, and the more to that is over the last few years, you guys, if you've been at Mount Hope, you've seen Maya get baptized. You've seen Maya stand up here and lead in prayer on a Sunday morning. And you've seen God at work in her life. And so we thank the Lord for the way that he's at work, Jeannie and you and George and Maya and Kate as well. I want to take a moment just to pray because I'm guessing that that story connected with people on a few levels. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're not enough or maybe just that realizing you are not enough and you were never meant to be enough apart from Christ that you are not in control of these things that are most important to you. Maybe there's a particular part that connected with you about being a mom or being a daughter. Maybe there's a particular part of suffering that may have connected with you. I just want to take a moment and go to the ward and pray this morning. Would you join me? Father, I recognize that in a moment like this and in a room of this size, there's all kinds of people. We're at different places And uh, Lord, your story and the way you work hits at different ways. But I just want to lift up your church this morning, that we offer ourselves before you. And Lord, we remember, God, that just as we sing often on Sunday morning, that Christ is enough, that you are enough, that we are never enough apart from you, that the calling is always too big, that the work is always too much apart from Christ and your spirit in our lives. That, Lord, those things that are most important to us, life, death, relationships in our lives, are so out of our control. But they are not out of your control, Lord. And so, Lord, I just want to lift up any person in here today who just is sensing, Lord, the need to respond, to say, I am not enough. And, Lord, you are in control. That this morning you would help us Lord, to yield ourselves completely to you and to see you at work in every area of our life, especially times of difficulty and pain and suffering, that you do not abandon, that you are the God who is present, that you are the God who is with us. And Lord, that yes, just as Jeannie said, the glories we will one day experience far surpass any of the pains or suffering we may experience here. And we hang on to that hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I pray that that has encouraged you and uh, that you be aware that God is at work in your life and in your story as well. 
this morning for the next few minutes that we have together, and I will just want to take a few minutes. We're continuing in our I Follow Jesus series. And each week we're talking about what it is to follow Jesus and exploring a question that goes with that. And this morning it's, I follow Jesus, but how do I know if I'm moving in the right direction? I want to talk for a few minutes about that question with you. How do I know if I'm moving in the right direction? I don't know if you've noticed, but the highways around here change their exit numbers. Anybody notice that? Some of you noticed, yeah? So, I mean, they, they've changed the numbers, and it messes you up a little bit when you're, you know, in your local area, right? I mean, for me, Wind Street is always going to be exit... 34. Third, whoa, 30, 34. 34. And Washington Street will always be exit... 36, and if you're on Route 3, Concord Road is 27. Not as many people drive on Route 3. Trouble Cove is 28. They're always going to be that way to me, even though they've all changed their numbers. I have no idea what the numbers are now. And it bothered me at first. I'm like, I can't give people directions anymore. I'm like, just get off exit 27, you know? I'm like, I don't know what it is now. It's, I don't even know. It's 50-something? I don't know. 70-something? 78? I don't know. But I will say this, when I am someplace I don't know, when I'm someplace unfamiliar, actually having exit numbers that match up with mile markers are kind of convenient. And if you don't know, that's what they did. That's what they did. They matched up the exit numbers with the mile markers on the roads. And when I'm somewhere I am unfamiliar with, this is helpful. Because I know if I've got to get off at exit 100 and I'm off, I'm at exit 70, I've got 30 miles to go. Every exit that goes up, like I'm getting closer, I know I'm moving in the right direction and getting closer to my destination. And that's important, right? To know that you're moving in the right direction and getting closer to your destination. We all want that. I mean, we look at mile markers, we look for mile markers all over the place in our lives. We look for mile markers with our kids. Right? From the earliest ages, if you've got kids, you take them to the pediatrician, and even like within the first few weeks, they're already measuring stuff. They're telling you weight percentile, height percentile, the size of their head percentile. Like they're looking at everything they can measure so you can get nervous from the very first weeks of their birth, right? I mean, so in school, it's SATs, ACTs, GPAs. Where do I fit? What are the mile markers? It's grades, one, two, three. Where, you know, I want to measure it. In work, you've got goals you set, annual goals, team goals. And if you're not hitting them, there's employee improvement programs, right, to get to the places you're supposed to be. We're always measuring. We're always looking for mile markers. How am I doing? Am I moving in the right direction? And am I getting closer to my destination? The truth is you could be moving, but not necessarily getting to the place you're supposed to be getting to. And I think that's often the truth. We're all moving somewhere, but are we moving in the right direction? And when it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to following Jesus, what are your mile markers? How do you know that you're moving in the right direction when you're following Jesus and that you're getting closer to the destination where you're supposed to be? What is it that you would look to, to know that you are moving in the right direction and getting closer to where Jesus wants you to get to? Because we're all supposed to get somewhere. Uh, the Bible tells us that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are supposed to be being formed into his image. You're supposed to be becoming more like Jesus. Your life, my life, is supposed to look more like Jesus if he were living my life 
for me. So how do I know I'm getting there? I want to talk about that this morning. We're going to look at a passage in Galatians chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have one, there should be one in your chair rack. And in your chair rack Bible, it'll be about page 974. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 5. And a passage of scripture where Paul, the apostle, writing to a church in Galatia, really gives some mile markers of how they can know if they are walking in the right direction with God and how, they're getting, and how they can know they're getting closer to their destination. So we're gonna look at that. But before we get to the mile markers of what shows we are moving in the right direction, let me give you a couple things that don't show necessarily that you're moving in the right direction. A couple of things that maybe you might be tempted to look at but don't necessarily prove that you're moving in the right direction. And the first one is this, rule following is not a great mile marker in the Christian life. That might surprise you, but following rules, I don't think is a great mile marker in the Christian life. Now you might think it is, because some of you in here, you, maybe you're, you're, you know, you're fairly new to church, and you thought, I thought church was all about following rules. And certainly the people that are doing the best at whatever church is are going to be the people that are following the most rules. That could be the tempting thing to think at times, but I actually don't think it's a very good mile marker. And I am a rule follower. I'm a firstborn. How many other firstborns in the room? How many firstborns, right? And I'm going to make a stereotype. It's not true about all firstborns. But about a lot of firstborns, just going to make the stereotype, throw it out, may not be true about you all the time, but us firstborns are usually rule followers. How many firstborns are rule followers? How many people are sitting beside a firstborn that just said, you should have just raised your hands? (laughs) This is what it looks like for me, and it drives my kids crazy. So here's one instance. We're at a baseball game. And I'm sitting in my seat with my ticket number that matches up where I'm supposed to sit. And it's raining because we're in Baltimore a few years ago and it is raining and all the seats in front of us are empty. And then some people might want to move down to those seats in front of you, you second borns and third borns. You know who you are. You're like, what's the big deal? Come on. But I'm sitting in my seat with my ticket and my number, and this is where I go. That's annoying sometimes. That's sometimes the way firstborns are. That's how it works out in my life at times. But here's the reality. Just because you followed the rules doesn't mean you're mature, does it? Because I could be sitting in my right seat following the rules, but be an extremely immature person. And it's the same way in our spiritual lives. Just because you're good at following the rules doesn't necessarily mean, isn't necessarily a mark of great spiritual maturity. In fact, the truth is, I have known throughout my life many people who call themselves Christians who are really good at following the rules, but who are really spiritually immature. And it's just true. It's just not a great marker of spiritual maturity. In fact, it can actually be the exact opposite. It can be hiding a great spiritual immaturity. Because what you often do when you are great at following rules, 
when you are great at behavior modification so that you can kind of organize your life in a way that looks good on the outside is it fools people into thinking you are spiritually mature and it fools yourself into thinking you're spiritually mature. So now you start to rely on yourself. Now you start to rely on your own strength. Now you start stop relying on the grace of God and start thinking it's about what you can do. And this is exactly what was happening in the church at Galatia. And Paul in chapter five, verse two says this to them. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, this was one of the rules and laws that they thought good, mature Christians would have to follow or they were starting to be convinced of, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Listen to these words. You have fallen away from grace. You're putting your confidence in rules. You're putting your confidence in laws to say that this proves, you know, this is where our salvation is, this is where our maturity is, and Paul's saying, when you start putting your confidence there, you are actually falling away from the grace of God. That following the rules, legalism, is not necessarily, is not a sign that you're mature in Christ. It's not a great mile marker. It's not a great mile marker. But another thing that is not a great mile, if legalism isn't a great mile marker, then neither is license. License is, well, if I'm mature, I can do anything I want to do. No rule, you know, no rules, just right. I don't know whose logo that is. I hope it, but somebody has that, right? That license must be the mark of true maturity, that I don't have to have any rules on me, that I can do anything I want to do, that this must be a mature person. And Paul, uh, you know, he, he, he speaks against that too. He says, no, 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 it's not legalism and it's not license either. Following your fleshly desires is a clear sign that you're moving in the wrong direction. So if rules aren't a good you know, marker that say you're definitely moving in the right direction, then just following whatever you want to do is a clear sign you're moving in the wrong direction. That I just follow my baser desires, that I just follow what my flesh wants, that I just follow what my body wants, that I can do whatever I want to do. And Paul says, no, 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 don't go to the other extreme. That's not the answer either. He says, no, 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 that's, that's not the way you want to go either. Just because it's not legalism and rules that marks maturity, it's not license that marks it either. Look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Paul says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. Here's what Paul's saying. It's not legalism and rules that mark maturity, but it's not license and just following your desires and doing whatever you do either. That's not the answer. He's saying, you know, your your flesh is gonna have desires, but you can't just follow those because the people who are pursuing those are heading in a different direction than you. And I wanna clarify something Paul says in this passage. He He says at the end of what I just read, he says this, that I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, Does that mean that if I am jealous, because that's in this list, that I'm not a Christian? Does that mean that if I ever get angry, because that's in this list, that I'm not a child of God? Does that mean that if ever I go into and create division, that I'm not an heir with Christ? That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. You may find yourself, you're gonna find yourself in this battle But he's saying people who pursue these things as a practice in their life are heading in a different direction than you are. Their goal is not the kingdom of God. Their goal, their direction, their aim is not God's glory. So why would you want to pursue things that people who have a complete different goal than you have, a complete different destination, a complete different place that they're going, why would you want to pursue the things they're pursuing? Paul's saying it's kind of like an athlete. I think this would be a way to look at it. It's kind of like an athlete. Different athletes, depending on their goal, they have different workout and diet routines, right? I mean, if you're a gymnast and you need extreme flexibility, you're not gonna have the same workout and diet routine as a power lifter, right? It's gonna be completely different. So if you are going to pursue being a gymnast, why would you go and have the same practices of someone who's gonna be a power lifter who has a very different goal, a very different direction, a very different place they're trying to end up? Paul's saying that same thing. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, Why would you pursue these these things of the flesh? Why would these become practices in your life? Those people are going in a completely different direction. They have a different goal. They're going to end up someplace because they're aiming someplace else. So it's not legalism, and it's not license that's the mile marker. It's not, I'm a good rule follower that says I'm mature in Christ. And it's not, I can do anything I want that says I'm mature in Christ. What's the mile marker? Godly character as a result of intentionally walking by God's spirit reveals you are moving in God's direction. Or if I can say it in one word that Paul's gonna use in this passage, the word would be fruit. Fruit. It's the fruit of the spirit. Look at it picking up in verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit Now think about this in contrast to the list we just read. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And these who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul points to. These nine qualities in his life, in in the life of every Christian, that should be the mile markers that we are aiming towards. So it's not legalism and it's not license, it's actually being led by the Spirit. That is the marker of a Christian life. It's these qualities. And Paul says, against these things there is no law, because he's again speaking to this idea of getting caught up in rules and laws. And he says, look, he's essentially saying, look, if you've got these things in your life, you don't have to worry about the laws to follow. I think I could say it this way. Paul says, if you've got the nine fruit of the Spirit, you don't have to worry so much about the Ten Commandments. Not because they're not important, but because if you are being loving and gentle and those things are being cultivated in your life, you don't have to have someone tell you not to murder. And if you are kind and peaceful, then not lying or coveting, no one has to tell you that rule or that law. If you are growing in faithfulness and you know that's important to God, that's coming about in your life. No one has to tell you not to cheat on your spouse. These things are going to come about in your life. These are the things that come about in the life of a Christian. These are the things of what it is to walk with God. But, the main, but one of Paul's main points that we need to understand is that fruit doesn't come about by making, by tying fruit on a tree, Right? Fruit doesn't come about by just thinking it into existence. Fruit comes about by cultivating it in your life. He contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. There's a difference there. Works of the flesh is something I do. Fruit is something that's brought about by something that's inside of me. And he says the thing that you should do, the way to bring about fruit in your life is to walk by the Spirit. Verse 16 of chapter five says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the only imperative in this passage. He doesn't say, make fruit come forth in your life. He doesn't say, bring forth fruit in your life. That's not an imperative. He doesn't say, love as an imperative. Or be kind as an imperative. The imperative, the command is walk by the spirit and these things will come about in your life. Which means if these things are not in my life, it's not that I'm not trying hard enough, it's that I'm not walking by the spirit enough in my life. And so when it comes to fruit, you can't fake it by just being a rule follower You can't make it happen by just thinking it into existence, but it will come if you will walk by God's spirit in your life. It will come about when you walk by God's spirit. And so I'm gonna ask our worship team to come back as we finish up and close out. And I wanna ask you this, where are those places in your life where maybe you have thought or you have lacked some of this fruit of the spirit? Where are the places in your life, let me read the list again, where you have lacked... Love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Any one of these nine, where are the places you have lacked? And in that place, man of God, woman of God, here's what I'm gonna guess, because I think you're probably not too different than me. I'm gonna guess that when you have been unkind and when you have not been gentle or when you have not been patient, that your first thought has been, God, I need to be more patient. God, I need to be more gentle. Lord, I need to be more loving. Lord, I need to be more kind. But what this passage is saying is our prayer ought to be, Lord, I need to walk more by your spirit. Lord, I need to walk, I'm out of step with your spirit. What my lack of love is really showing is it's a dashboard light, it's a light on the dashboard of my soul saying, you need to walk more by the spirit. You need to walk more by the spirit. Places in our lives where you hope that you see this. And so you look at your life, what's the mile markers? I was thinking of about this week and I was thinking, I had this of course message on my mind this week and thinking about mile markers and there's places in our lives where hopefully you see mile markers and you say, you know what, I think that shows I'm kind of moving in a good direction. Maybe, I'm, maybe the spirit is active in my life. This week I was thinking about or heard about what many of you heard about, that Supreme Court kind of leak of possible Supreme Court opinion. I don't even know what to call it, a leak of a possible decision, possible opinion um, about possibly overturning Roe v. Wade. And aside from the political wranglings of who let it out, why did it come out, is it good, is it bad, how, how did it get out, all those kinds of things, well, whose advantages it got out, that's not really what I'm interested in this morning. More, you know, what's the reaction when something like that does come out? We're a church that believes in the value of life, that believes in the importance of life, and it can be easy when a decision like that comes out to say, oh, good rule. A rule change that would be a good rule change. And that could be one way to handle it. But as I heard it, I thought about the first thought that came into my mind um, was, you know, no doubt the battles, even if Roe v. Wade got overturned in the federal courts, the battles already moved to states. There's already other things that are involved. There's no doubt there would be people who would want abortions. They'd still find a way and they'd go to other countries or other states or that would happen. But there'd probably be some women who may have gotten an abortion if it was easier and now won't. And my first thought was, will the church be ready? Will the church be ready to come alongside women who don't think they're ready, shouldn't, can't, don't want a child or a baby? And will the church be ready to come alongside and show grace and care and love and mercy and minister in times like that? And to me, if we would think that way about something like that, that it shows I think we're growing in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That if our first thought is more how, who is going to be affected, how were their lives, and how can I administer God's grace and love to them in their time? And that one I thought, well, maybe, Rick, you're not a total loss. Maybe there's something God's grace working in your life somewhere. But then later in the week, and I'm like you, 
just, just the other day. I, I, a large shipping company messed up my order. I won't tell you who they are, but there's a river in South America that has the same name. And I was upset. And I, you know, I was like looking for a number to call and someone to talk to because it was something important that I was waiting for. And if you've ever tried to call this river in South America, it is really hard to find a phone number to talk to somebody. And I started to get, I started to get upset. I was not being kind. I was not being gentle. And in that moment, I thought, you're not walking by the Spirit right now. You need to walk more by the Spirit. Not because I was thinking about this message. You need to be more more kind. You need to be more loving. No, you're not walking by the Spirit. And you need to walk more with the Spirit. And so in your life, I, this is my encouragement to you, and I think Paul's encouragement and the Lord's encouragement is this. It's not about you trying harder to be more loving and kind and peaceful and gentle and good and faithful and self-control and all those things. It's not about that. Those are just simply mile markers that when I'm walking by the Spirit, those things are going to come about in the life of a follower of Jesus through God's Spirit in your life. I want to pray for you. Would you stand? I'll pray for you. And we'll, the team's going to lead us in a great hymn about the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives. Lord, God, we are your church and we are led by your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk by your spirit, to walk with your spirit, to walk in step, to be led by you, to press in, to empty ourselves so that you can fill us with your spirit in our lives. To recognize, Lord, that it's not about our strength and our ability to follow rules, but it's about our walking with your spirit that allows us to live the life that you've called us to live. And so in those times, would you lead us in your ways and show us yourself in a greater way. In Jesus' name.